With your help, we can continue to fight for freedom, reach new audiences, and bring important information to the public free of charge. This is not possible without your generosity. Join our quest for the truth and our freedom and donate today. Simply go to tntradio.live. Discussing local, national, and international issues. Weekends with Jason Olborn on today's News Talk TNT. Welcome back to Hour 3 here on Weekends with Jason Olborn. Goodness me, Professor Ian Plyler was fired up in the last hour. Wasn't it terrific? If you just happen to miss it, I encourage you to check it out on either the podcast, being that you can hear it on audio, or you can now go on Rumble, look up tntradio.live, and you'll be able to find all of our separate hours uploaded on video. And that way you can obviously watch it and of course encourage you to share it on your social media and say, hey, did you watch this? Check it out. This is Jason and Ian Plyler going off will be one of them. Or of course, you might want to have a look at Mark Morrie, the Sydney crime editor, as we talked about, Roger Rogerson, the crime, the youth crime, etc. in Australia, offered some solutions. It's all about solutions. It's about reporting on problems, etc. But working out ways how we can make the world better for all of us. And Many people who have been following the work that I've been doing might hear or have heard when I say always use your strength, your weakness, I should say, as your strength. And what I mean by that is that that's where what happens when something terrible happens to you, you learn from adversity. You don't grow from a comfort zone. You grow when things affect you in certain ways and force action. Well, my next guest, David Shipley, is one such human being. I discovered David's work on The Spectator, and he was writing consistently about prisons, his life in prison and prison reform. And I thought, what's going on here? And I felt that I was reading the work of a man with the heart the size of Farlap. You don't often hear of people going inside, acknowledging their faults and realizing that there's something bigger than themselves, and that is other people in a way that there's got to be a better way to manage the prison system. How about that? Well, let me tell you a little bit about David. He used to sell forklift trucks. He worked in corporate finance. He produced a film, and then he committed a fraud. During his sentence, he was horrified by the prison system that he saw. He chose to write about that and other things. He also lectures on prisons. He works as a prison inspector. And he also, luckily for us, does the occasional media appearance. David Shipley, welcome to Weekends. Hi, Jess. How are you doing? Look very well. And uh, I, I'm so delighted that we're finally able to uh, be able to catch up today on the show. When That's I, great um, thank you. And, and when I was reading, you know, the stories back, uh, and each one of them, it, it's so heartfelt. Like, you're telling the story of firstly being, you know, inside your first night in prison and and, and I, I and reading about it, you explain this almost built up anxiety, this fear that you have. And now you're in there and you've got to go through the motions and you're incredibly polite in, in the way that you're describing the situations, whoever you meet, you know, cellmates, um, uh, staff, for, for example, but they all respond to you in such a positive way. There doesn't seem to be friction. You don't seem to be threatened as such. And it seems almost that you can kind of settle in in some way, almost as if this is a process now. And it feels very early on that something happens in a way that says, I'm going to make the most of this situation and I'm going to do my time and I'm going to get something out of it, which is what it's for. And you set yourself a goal. Am I kind of getting it right that this is part of this emotional thing that goes on inside you at the time? Yeah, I think that's 
That's accurate. I think um, I had a about a year between pleading guilty to my, my crime and being sentenced. So I had quite a long, long time to think about what prison was going to be like. As you'd imagine, I kind of woke up most mornings thinking about it. Uh, and I, I decided that I really wanted to make sure that however long I went to prison for, I would leave in better physical, emotional, spiritual, and psychological health than I went in. Uh, and that, I think, was was really important to me. I think through my my time in prison, I, I, I tried to use you know every moment as, as in as good a way as I could uh, because I figured you know whatever happens, I'm here for these these two years. So you know I could waste that time, or I could do something something good and purposeful with it. I um. It sounds obvious, doesn't it, that uh, anyone would, would you know, if they realise they've made an error, the fact that you chose to plead guilty, uh, that this would be an approach that you would do. But it's a very, very healthy approach. But you actually stick to it, you know, against, you know, all of the, um, uh, I guess, all of the things that are going to be thrown at you in that period period of time. Now, you're sentenced to a fairly substantial sentence. Three years and nine months is a long time. Was that in the realms of expectation? Did you think you might get less? Did you think you might get more? How did you cope when you got that final sentence? It was pretty much what I was expecting. Uh, I, I, the sentencing guidelines for cases are quite tight in, in the UK. So if you could sort of look at those and, and, and then you talk to your lawyer and I had a fairly good to be around that uh but I don't think anything prepares you for that moment where you're standing in the dock and a judge actually says you know I am sentencing you to this uh but I think that even if you believe you prepared yourself for it it's very very hard to hear that and receive that do you consider yourself at the time a bad person or a person that just made a mistake at a certain weakness in your life, for example? So I I, I think, I, I spent a long time kind of in prison thinking about this, thinking about why I'd, why I'd committed my offence and how to make sure I wouldn't do things like that again. Um, and I think fundamentally I built a ha- habit of, of lying from, from when I was quite a small boy. I went to a uh, a really, really old-fashioned, quite sadistic prep school. And I think when I was there, I, I, I learned that you never show weakness. You always pretend everything's fine. You you build this shell about yourself. And that habit of never letting anyone, never letting myself be seen just went through my life. And so when I uh, when I went to the world of work and I was you know, working in a lot of sales jobs, uh, that that sort of ability to present what you think people want to hear, um, which is a form of lying in my view, uh, was, was something I, I used and I developed those skills and therefore I was reasonably successful as a salesperson. Uh, and I think that that habit of, of lying combined with like a, for a long time a fundamental insecurity and, and dissatisfaction with myself uh, were, the, were the two things that led to me to me committing that fraud and lying. Uh, it's, I don't think, I think almost no one is completely bad or good. I'm not sure those are necessarily helpful framings, but I do absolutely think that I I spent a long time being dishonest in business in lots of ways, which didn't meet the, the, the sort of the bar for criminality, but was still dishonest. Um, and that was wrong. 
Uh, so, so I think there's a, for me, one of the lessons I've learned is yeah, Aristotle talks about this in Nicomachean Ethics, the, the idea that virtue is a habit, and I think vice is as well. So I think we, if we make the correct moral choices on small things, uh, you know, not speeding, not telling white lies uh, to our boss or to you know to, or to friends to sort of pretend why we can't make it to a, an arranged social event or something, then um, that habit will continue. So I think we, I think I did the opposite. I, I spent years and years and years developing a habit of, of dishonesty and, and a habit of making poor moral choices. So when I was presented with a really big moral choice, I failed that test. It's it's powerful. the uh, the ability to uh, be able to self reflect, David, is uh, immense, and uh, I, I think that our, our listeners, our viewers, will really appreciate um, your story. And we're going to obviously dig deeper now uh, into um, the process and, and 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 the life that you were living there. Um, I think it's probably a good time, if if we do, to to describe, if you don't mind, that day that you arrived, that first day in prison, and how you're preparing for that first night. For most of us, it's something that we would only really see in a film. I'm reminded, of course, of um, the film The Shawshank Redemption, where that fellow comes in on that first day and is beaten to death, and that's the great big shock, of course, that everyone um, sort of feels. Um, what was it like for you? It's interesting you mentioned the Shawshank Redemption. I think uh, probably for most of us, most of our mental idea of what prison is like is dominated by US media. Mm. So, so yeah, I think you know I was really terrified of of becoming a victim of of you know violence or even sexual violence. You know all these sort of horrible things you see in in films like Shawshank, and. It, certainly in, in England, it, it wasn't like that. And I suspect the Australian system is also not like the American system. Uh, you know, it was, it was, there was this strange experience. So after I was sentenced, they took me down uh, to the cells beneath the court for a little bit until there were enough of us who'd been sentenced to put us on a, a what they call the, the bus or the sweatbox. And this is a uh, sort of, you know, mid-sized van, which is all white apart from having tiny, darkened windows down each side and we were led onto this and at each there's a narrow corridor off off the sides of it are tiny cubicles that you get locked in with a molded plastic seat and a tiny window to look out of so you know we're all put in those no seat belts because you know you might use a seatbelt to self-harm yourself as a prisoner so, so suddenly i started to realize there's this difference in how you're treated once you've, you've crossed that line from, from free man to prisoner. Uh, and then I think most of the other guys on the, the the bus had all been sentenced together. They all seemed to know each other. So they were sort of chatting away, and I got the impression it wasn't their first time, uh, first time in prison at all. They were they were sort of, you know, kind of laughing and joking about how long each guy had been sentenced to. And um, I suppose in a funny way, that, that, that actually buoyed my spirit slightly <laughs> because... I, I think to, to realize, oh, there's these guys here, and you know, they've done it before, and they survived it, mm-hmm. and it's okay, you know. And I, and I think in life, often it's the case that we worry a great deal about stuff, but actually, when we do it, it's not as bad. Mm-hmm. Uh, not not everything, but I think in many things, we, we are worse in the imagining than they are in reality. So we we, we crawled our way through the uh, South London traffic on a on a busy Thursday afternoon, and this was February the sixth. 
2020, so, so just over four years ago, I had my fourth anniversary of my sentencing last week. And it's just before COVID, so we haven't had lockdowns or anything yet. So I'm looking out through this tiny window and, you know, people are walking around on, in the sunshine, you know, going to get a sandwich, going into pubs. And I had this real sense of just loss. You know, thinking, God, I'm not going to get to do any of that for, for years. You know, no, like grabbing a coffee when you want, you know, treating yourself to a, a croissant or a pastry or something, you know, no going to the pub, no just walking in the sunshine, you know, free. And I think it really started to hit me at that moment. Then um, in one of those moments where I think sometimes God can be very, very loud, we, we were driving along the south side of the Thames and I looked out the window and saw Parliament glittering in the sunshine and, you know, up until a year or two before that, I'd been really interested in politics as a career. I'd been looking to get into parliament and that sort of thing. And I thought, well, yes, okay, that's you're, you're very much showing me that's gone now. Um, and I suppose that's where I started to think about what what am I going to do next? What am I going to be? You know, what's the second half of my life going to be about? Um, and I was deep in these thoughts when I when I smelled uh, the stink of urine. And I realized that we'd been in the van so long that one of the guys couldn't hold his bladder anymore. So he'd relieved himself and this big stream of urine was running down the, the middle of the van. Some of it came under my door. Um, but that's very prison. You can ha be having these like really deep introspective moments in the quietness of your head, really trying to interrogate, you know, who you are and what you want to be. And then something uh, incredibly mundane and kind of gross will happen, like someone will vomit or someone will fight or there won't be any food or the the, the water will stop or, or someone will leave themselves next to you. Um, and that juxtaposition of the the sort of those two experiences, I think, is, is quite common in prison. So uh, eventually we got to Wandsworth itself and the... It just I think my first impression was just of chaos. You, you know, we went to the reception area and there's, there's just people milling around. Uh, I, I suppose I'd imagined that, you know, in a prison, maybe you're going to be shackled all the time or in leg irons. And no, once you're in there, they just, they, they, you know, the assumption is that the walls will keep you in. So there were, there were prisoners and, and staff milling around. Uh, a lot of us were shoved into a holding cell, which is sort of a big perspex walled box. And, and made to wait there because there were so many of us that had arrived that they, it was taking them time to process us. Uh, and I you know, went into this holding pen and stood there really awkwardly in my suit. I think I was the only person wearing a suit in that holding pen. And, you know, I probably looking terrified, probably looking really out of, out of just not knowing what was going on. And this this man came up to me and, and said, oh, are you in for fraud then? And I, I kind of laughed and said, is it, is it that obvious? And he was like, yeah um and we started talking and he was he was called david as well and he'd he'd been in in prison for a long time his uh in and out he he was sentenced under what's called the ipp which your your listeners may not have heard of it's it was a, a sentence which was in existence for a few years in in the uk uh and it basically gave people life long sentences for often relatively minor offenses uh, it was scrapped after a few years because it was realised it was being used to jail people completely unreasonably, but there are still quite a lot of men held under it within the system. So there's a big campaign at the moment to try and re-sentence them or you know, give them a route to leaving that, that life sentence. So 
this is a big deal to be able to analyze uh, this process. But at some stage, you move into um, the ability, to, you've already set yourself that you're going to get something out of this, but now the reality sets in. What we're going to do is we'll take a, a quick break. Uh, and when we come back, we're going to explore deeper because we're going to get into the process now that you become a reformer. Uh, and this is a, a process. And I also want to talk about some of the um, the prisoners that you meet that lead you to realise that the process of rehabilitation is not really what it's all about. It seems to be breeding prisoners for life here. And that's the detail and the nuance that uh, I think that all of our audience will appreciate uh, an understanding from somebody who's been inside and he's working to make life better for everyone. In the meantime, if you've missed your favourite TNT show or interview, simply listen or watch it when you want, wherever you want. Just visit episodes on the TNT Radio website, rumble.com, bitshoot.com or brighteon.com. We're also on all the major podcast platforms, including Apple, Google, Spotify, Amazon, Podbean, iHeart and TuneIn. Now, there's no reason to miss out on anything on today's News Talk TNT Radio. TNT's Patrick Henningsen. Hamza Dahoud was the eldest son of the Gaza Bureau for Al Jazeera, while Dahoud, who previously lost other family members in Israeli bombing raid. And we would say that this is probably, in terms of conflicts, uh, this many journalists have been lost, uh, killed, injured in the whole of the Second World War, and that lasted. Uh, a number of years, and only in the last three months are we scraping a hundred on the uh, journalist uh, fatality list, which is coming fast and furious out of Gaza. Patrick Henningsen on today's News Talk TNT. The Light is Britain's far-right conspiracy theory paper spreading hate and vicious lies. No, that's what the BBC say. The Light is the only national newspaper bringing you the real news and informed opinion on what's really going on today. You can subscribe, order copies, submit articles, and read back issues on our website, thelightpaper.co.uk, and see for yourself why the establishment are so worried about the uncensored truth getting out to people every month. The Light Paper. Not for right, just right so far. Thelightpaper.co.uk it sounds really good. It's it sounds like, real, it's dude. Not bad, huh? This is today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Welcome back. My guest this hour is David Shipley, who has been telling us about his first day behind bars in prison, serving three years and nine months for fraud. David, in the end, how much time did you actually serve before you were eventually released? Uh, in the end, I spent about 19 months in prison, and then I was released on what's called a home detention curfew, which is where they put an ankle tag on you, and you know you have to stay inside between 7 p.m. and 7 a.m. every day. But you're in your home, so uh, that was so. I was eventually released in August 2021. How did you feel? So now you're sort of smack bang in the middle of COVID. Um... It was obviously a relief. Uh, did you have to modify your life a lot given the ankle bracelet? Not really. Um, I suppose because there was there were COVID lockdowns and things when I came out, it wasn't particular. It wasn't like there was a huge social scene going on. Uh, you know, I just had to make sure I was, yeah, getting home by seven pm every day was sometimes a bit stressful. You know, if you're le leaving the city centre from the shops at 5pm and there's a bit of traffic and you look at the sat-nav and the sat-nav saying, oh, you're not going to get home till 6.53. It was a bit stressful, but I tended to just say to myself, do you know what, this is much, much better than being in prison, so I'll just, I'll wear this. 
No, absolutely. Now, once you're in prison, uh, you, you obviously meet a, a bunch of different people in there. And uh, one of the stories that you tell uh, in, in the article that you write for The Spectator is about a fellow called Peter from Poland. And I was hoping that you could explain uh, a bit about the relationship that you meet this man and uh, you don't know what to expect. You're sharing a cell the first time with a stranger. And it probably doesn't go necessarily the way that your anxiety may have led. This turns out that Peter's a, a nice guy. Yeah, so Peter was my first cellmate, and I said I had no idea. They, I, I got processed, taken onto the wing, and they said, "Okay, you're going in in that cell there." Shoved me in, essentially, not not physically, just opened the door and you know beckoned me in. And this guy, Peter, uh, was a Polish guy about my age, and we got we got chatting, and he was just so kind. Uh, really, he he'd been in prison before, and he 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 helped me sort of to understand the rules of sharing the cell and how you respect each other's space, you know, in a way that will minimise conflict. Because you've got to remember, a, a prison cell in England, somewhere like Wandsworth, is the size of a car parking space, and in that you've got like a you know a double bed, you've got your your toilet, a sink, a tiny place to eat, all of that crammed in together, and that's where you sleep, eat, drink, you know, go to the loo. For most of your day so it's it's you it's very important that you you find a way to get on with each other and not not wind each other up but peter was really interesting so so he he's a polish guy and he had lived in the uk for for about 15 years i think at this point and he was being extradited back to poland for a crime he committed there when he was a young man it was a commercial burglary uh so I found myself thinking, you know, like he'd done the crime when he was about 20. He'd come to the UK and he had lived there and lived in the UK, start, got married, started a family, had been working as a, you know, as a builder on construction sites. And I just sort of thought, what's what's the point here? What's really being achieved in, you know, ripping this man from this stability that he's built and throwing him back to a country he's not been to in 15 years? And I thought in that moment, and I often thought this in prison, that there were a lot of people there who had far more excuse for being in prison than I did. You know, I, I had a really privileged background. I don't think I really had any any moral excuse or justification for my crime. But lots of people like Peter, I think, you know, he did something stupid when he was a kid. Uh, and to be punishing him for that 15, 20 years later just seemed pointless. Now... There's two other um, people that I'd like to talk about because you, you obviously write about, and by the way, I mean, you, you've studied writing. You, you, what was it, a master's that you studied at university? Uh, sorry, in jail for um, yes. the qualification? Incredible and a very talented, gifted writer. Uh, and uh, you're that's, telling that's the story. Kind, thank you. Well, well, and well-deserved. But uh, you're telling the story about the cellmate on the heroin cycle. Uh, this was a fellow that um, he gets in, he's obviously addicted to heroin, but he comes in and he kind of fattens himself up and gets on the straight and narrow, but only to go back to the same cycle again. Can you tell us a bit more, a bit more about this man? Yeah, so this is, again is, is, is quite common. Uh, so, so this chap was a, a heroin addict and he was in a regular cycle of being on the streets, taking all of heroin, and as a result, getting incredibly thin. You know, his weight would drop down to, you know, fifty kilos. He would be skin and bone, and then he'd come back into into prison because he'd get caught for some kind of shoplifting normally, or he'd just go and hand himself in to the police and say, oh, "I did that." 
so he could get to prison. And in prison, he would go on methadone and he uh, would just eat all the sugary things he could. He'd you know, drink tea with, where like half the cup was probably sugar. Uh, and there were lots of guys like this. Uh, and it was this, this strange cycle where they they were, they talk about it. They, they knew what they were doing. They said, I come in, you know, for a few months in the winter to, to build myself up again. Then, you know, I'll be in here for three months and I'm back out for the spring. And again, I just sort of looked at this and thought, this is this is lunacy, you know. Like, uh, I'm not a prison abolitionist. I do think there is a place in society for, for imprisoning people who are dangerous or to punish them or to, to you know, send a signal. I, I do do agree with that. But a lot of the prison system I saw just seemed to be wasting time, money, and human potential. You know, surely with guys like that, we should get them onto actual treatment programs and try and get them off drugs permanently, not just provide an expensive prison place as a sort of revolving door you know ill health spa uh for for, for heroin addicts it, it was bizarre and, and, and again just you just think this is not how the system should function now there's another fellow that you meet who um he tells you that he's iq 75 and he asks you if that's good or bad and you're talking and watching tv with him and he can't tell the difference between a soapy character and real life story, and you realise he's only serving some short eighteen week sentence or something, and you discover that he's going out and he's coming back in. Can you tell us a bit more about this person and that story? Yeah, so this was Mark. Uh, Mark, I think, was about my fifth or sixth cellmate. In my first month in Wandsworth, I just kept getting a succession of people who were had a few days or a couple of weeks left to to serve on their sentence, and Mark just seemed like a lost little boy now in in the uk there's a, a presumption if you are uh you know if, if you're not fit to stand trial because of you know some kind of cognitive disability or because you're you're, you're not in your right mind then you shouldn't stand trial and i, I assume it's the, the the same in australia the thing i realized really quickly with mark in the first evening we spent together is he just didn't have the cognitive capacity to understand the world so as you said we, 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 we had the tv on in our cell and he watched the news with me and then he watched a soap opera that came on and he thought both were both were true stories about the world he he, he didn't have the ability to distinguish fact and fiction and when we got to know each other over the next couple of days he eventually showed me the paperwork around his case and this young man had had some kind of falling out with his father. He'd, he'd been trying to get back into the family home. The father wouldn't let him. The father had reported him to the police. And this just, again, seemed tragic. You, know, you had this sort of poor lost boy, essentially. It was like sharing a cell with a, a slightly confused eight-year-old boy. Uh, and it was it was terrifying to me that we had, we had put someone like that into the justice system. He, he was quite scared. You know, he wouldn't get, he wouldn't leave the cell. He would nip out to get his food and then come straight back in. That was the only time he'd leave the cell. And I asked him why, and he said, you know, that he was scared, and he said that you know there are people people have been unkind to me. And he wouldn't go into detail, but he just he'd obviously had a really tough time, and I clearly had been taken advantage of in, in one way or another during his his few weeks in the prison system. And again, I just come back to think, oh my God, what are we what are we doing? imprisoning this man this 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 man obviously must have sat in front of a police officer in front of lawyers in front of a judge surely someone if, if, if you spoke to him for 20 minutes you would realize there was something profoundly wrong with his ability to understand the world 
and he needed to be in a in a, in a care environment, not in a not in a prison. And then, strangely, he's to be returned to prison to serve a very short couple of weeks. And and I think this is when you make the realisation that there is absolutely no point whatsoever. There's nothing to be gained by anyone in doing this. Was this one of those moments that you now realise that you've got something to add in the area of prison reform? Yeah, I think so. So so there's a thing in British sentences called recall. So for most people, you get given a sentence and you're released about halfway through it. But for the rest of the sentence, you are what's called on license. And that means you're being supervised by probation. And if you commit another offence, you'll be recalled. But also, if you breach some administrative requirement of your probation, you'll be recalled. And about three quarters of the people being recalled are for the latter reasons. It's not because they've committed a new crime. It's because they've uh, missed three calls or appointments with a probation officer. Now, that might sound to you and me ridiculous. How could someone miss miss three appointments? But actually, often these people have very chaotic lives. They might not have anywhere to live. They might not even be able to afford a mobile phone. So in that dynamic where you can't you know, afford the bus fare to get to the probation office, it's actually quite easy to see how that, that happens. And you know, three appointments missed, that's equal recalled. So in this case, Mark's original sentence was 18 weeks, I think, from memory. He had been released halfway through that, and then he breached his license and as a result was recalled for a standard recall, which was two weeks. So the thing about in longer sentences, if you're in prison for a few years, you have got the time to do education, to work on your physical fitness, do all the sort of positive things like I talk about if you if you can find the opportunities. A prison sentence of 18 weeks or two weeks, all that does is that means you're going to lose any work you have. You're probably going to lose your home if you're you know renting a property, which most people in prison do. And then what? There's no time in two weeks to do any kind of training or, or like, you know, work skills development or therapy or anything. So, so we are just destroying people's, st- any stability people have, hauling them back to prison to do nothing. I mean, Mark was very clearly not a threat to anyone. There was nothing violent in his offence. He, he was a really confused uh, guy with a really, you know, really low level of cognitive functioning who yeah like, again it, it just struck me this is this is wrong and i think i'm i think where i got to is that prison reform has traditionally been something that i suppose left liberal people are focused on but actually once you've seen the prison system you see how bad it is how it how it just destroys human potential and how it in my view also through some of the values it teaches it it makes people more likely to reoffend I, yeah, this is where I started to think, God, I've, got, I've got to actually make noise about this because this is something which everyone should care about. Well, th- this is it, right? Because if it's a process of rehabilitation and you are witnessing in real time that people are not being rehabilitated for potentially minor crimes, minor infringements, uh, an administrative uh, error in the case of a, of a man with an IQ of 75, uh, it, it seems that there's only punishment. And this goes down the same pathway with the um, the, the drug use, et cetera. Um, 
when you are going through this process, and of course you are in there and you're serving some sort of 18 months at this stage, so you've presumably are now enrolled and you're you're doing your your master's course in writing at this stage. Um, is is that when you realise that, uh, that it's not an, a level playing field, that you must uh, really get the most out of this particular uh, system? Or, or are you also realising that these minor crimes should just be the ones that you would abolish, for example, that Mark shouldn't have served time, like you mentioned earlier, he should be uh, under care rather than under punishment? Um, I'm trying to work out uh, the, the the way that you make the realisation, because to, to do what you do, David, to come out, to, to start writing, to become a prison inspector, for example, these are all things that most people would run away and want to be nowhere near it. But you turn around and you, and you face this and you go, I am going to make a difference. Um, uh, I'm going to do something and serve my community in a way, in an area that no one cares about these people. That's why they're locked up in the first place. Um, how do you make the leap to say, okay, um, now that there's this constructive component, I feel for this man, I feel for other people, I want to do something about it? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. So so um, I there's, there's a few pieces there. So I think w- what what made me decide I had to do something about it, I think was pretty early. I the I think the the moment that shifted it for me was when I, I realized that the system itself doesn't just not rehabilitate people, it also I think makes makes reoffending more likely. And in the first few weeks I saw this time and time again, and I saw it all the way through my prison sentence. So the prison system teaches prisoners that that actually you get rewarded if you break the rules that you can often just ignore the rules and it'll be fine and that antisocial behavior is often rewarded and what i mean by that is i'll give you a few examples of this so prison is full of lots and lots and lots of rules and the thing is they aren't enforced consistently at all which is really dangerous because i think actually that that destroys respect for the rules so for example uh in most English prisons, there's a rule that says you can you can't smoke anymore in prisons, but you can vape, uh, but you can only vape in your cell. You're not allowed to vape on the landings or the public spaces. In Wandsworth, in many prisons, everyone vapes, uh, staff as well as prisoners on the landings, and occasionally you'd get a, you know a newly minted officer who would rock up from training who would try to tell someone not to vape, and they'd often be laughed. You know, I'd sort of laughed at by prisoners and by other staff, by their colleagues. So this sort of thing, you know, if you're a, a prisoner in that environment, what you're learning is actually even the people in authority don't take the rules seriously. So the rules aren't really important. Um, and this can become quite extreme. So in, in Wandsworth, on G-Wing, I remember the first time I walked onto it, there was a young man smoking a, a split for cannabis cigarette. And he uh, was standing not far from an officer who said to him, oh, you know, you know you're not allowed to smoke that here. And the guy just laughed at him and walked off. And often parts of Wandsworth felt more like a, a school where the teachers have lost control, you know. Uh, and I think that's one of the, the unexpected things about prison for me is actually it's very, you, you imagine it to be this, or I certainly do, I imagine it to be this very regimented environment where it's all you know, controlled. But actually it's, it's pretty chaotic and often you don't see many staff and a lot of it is, is effectively run by prisoners. You know, a lot of the, the functions of a prison are, are performed by prisoners and so living in this environment where it's very clear the rules aren't taken seriously i think teaches prisoners that they shouldn't take the rules seriously and, and you know everyone in prison pretty much is there because they've 
not taken at all seriously and broken them. So, you know, a prison system should be doing the opposite of that. So I think that was a big awakening for me. And also the way the, the prison system rewards antisocial behavior. So often if someone was, you know, feeling frustrated or in a bad mood, they might damage parts of their cell, rip the plumbing out. Uh, you know, in one case, a guy I, I, I know beat up his cellmate in a dispute over food. And that guy was rewarded with a, a single cell. You know, so he had the same size cell, but just for him. And often there's people who trash their cells would be, you know, placated with, well, we'll find him an Xbox, we'll find him some books, something to do, you know. And I can understand why it happens, because you have an understaffed prison service. Prison officers are often quite junior, quite stretched, and they just want the guy to stop doing the thing. And it's a bit like children... Uh, whose parent, you know, toddlers who are sort of behaving really badly and the, the parents sort of shove sweets at them. It, it it may stop the problem right there, but it does build often build up issues for the future. So I think that that part of the prison system I saw, oh, God, this is this is really bad. It's not just ineffective, it's it's actively making things worse. So that was a big awakening for me. And I think also becoming aware of the the, the way in which the prison system just chewed people up and this sort of callous institutional callousness and disregard for life and safety uh, really aw awoke me as well. Uh, and yeah, I, I kept a journal every day and I suppose I, I wrote down horror after horror and these failings and and, and I just became really angry. Uh, I just thought this is not, you know, we, we should have a prison system which, which, which provides every opportunity for people to change and heal and, and, and leave prison in much better shape than they came in because you know 95 percent of prisoners will be released one day um, and instead of that we have this this system where i think the only people who manage to rehabilitate themselves do it despite the system mm. not because of it geez that's beautifully put david we're going to take a quick break we're going to come back and talk more about the reform process and what can be done to make prison better not just in the uk but hopefully around the world as we realized that so many people down on their luck get into situations out of their control and it should be the system that supports them or not but the beautiful part is that all good growth comes from within and i think we're blessed to have david shipley with us today you're watching and listening to tnt radio De-weaponizing weather with reality and perspective. The cyclone that's in the north of Australia is kind of unusual for an El Nino season. That's because we have not really had an El Nino season this year in Australia. The Southern Oscillation Index, the longest running measure of the ENSO, or El Nino, La Nina, has not cooperated at all. And we knew this was a problem way back in the Northern Hemisphere fall in our spring because we weren't seeing a lot of typhoons. Usually when you have a big El Nino, you have a lot of typhoons going off and we had the third lowest typhoon production on record. So something funky was going on. However, that Southern Oscillation Index is going to crash for the month of February, which means that our fall should be average in Australia. Now, I'm bringing all this up because that crash in February is linked to severe cold in the United States and Europe for February into March. And we're seeing another ferocious storm attacking Norway now. A lot of heavy rain is coming into Europe over the next week. Now, the two times that happened, it turned frigid in Europe. Same thing is going to happen. Mid-February to mid-March will be frigid in Europe. You see all these storms crashing into the United States? 
Well, guess what? It's going to turn frigid in the United States. In fact, for much of the United States, the worst of the winter is on the way. And just think, it all hinges on looking at the weather around Australia. Isn't that nice? Hands across the water. Australia, the States, and Europe. Kumbaya. This is TNT climate and weather watchdog meteorologist Joe Bastardi asking you to enjoy the weather. It's the only weather you've got. She was reading at a second grade level in kindergarten. Pod force swimming before she was seven. Finally convinced mom to get her ears pierced in the third grade. Came in second at her fifth grade spelling bee. Drill team in the seventh. And with one stroke of the keyboard. One click of the mouse. It's gone. It's gone. It's gone. Report a cyber tip today. When you need to know what's going on around the world, stay with Weekends with Jason Olborn on today's News Talk TNT. Welcome back. My guest this hour is David Shipley. And David, we're talking about the life in prison, the realisation of what's going on. But you're out and you decide that you want to get involved as a prison inspector and get involved with prison reform. How do you become a prison inspector? Yeah, I, I, I saw. I so after I got out, I, I opened a Twitter account and I started tweeting about prison stuff and talking about my experience. And I was still finishing my creative writing MA. And then in early 2022, I saw that the Inspectorate of Prisons and Probation here in in, in England had placed, tweeted out saying they wanted to find people with what they call lived experience of the justice system to to work alongside prison inspectors and probation inspectors. I thought, oh, that's that's interesting. I, you know, I wouldn't have thought they would do that. Uh, and I, from my time inside, I knew a, a guy who had, had left and set up a company which was providing different sorts of consulting services around the the justice system, a company called DWRM. So I I messaged him and said, oh, have you looked at this? And you know, DWRM ended up putting a bid together. They they asked me to be part of the the team of consultants that we were putting forward. We put the bid forward. We we won it. And uh, it was it was really hard at first. I, I think I, I, I think what we haven't talked about a lot today is how traumatizing a lot of the prison environment is in terms of the, the kind of the sounds, the smells, the sights, the really terrible things that happen. And I wonder if maybe I was just trying. I've been. I was just trying to make my uh, object of trauma safe by by you know, turning to face it. So maybe there's some sort of psychological need there. But it was. Uh, Really interesting, real privilege to be able to go into prison environments. And what was incredible is as soon as I sat down with prisoners to talk to them about their experience of the things we were inspecting on, I explained that I'd been to prison and, and when I'd left and what prisons I'd been in. And it, and it transformed the conversations because once uh, once those guys realised that I'd been you know, in their shoes on their side of the door, we could have a, a completely different conversation to one they'd have with the prison inspector. Uh, so it was, I think it was really worth doing. And it's something the the Ministry of Justice here is starting to do more of trying to bring people with lived experience into the into these these sorts of roles. So what do you learn now that you're doing these interviews with prisoners about um about the the process of living inside the prison? Where do you go now to become involved with prison reform? What are you learning and and what do you think should be done? 
Well, I think it was it was interesting for me, I suppose, to validate that my experience in Wandsworth wasn't unique and actually in other prisons experiences are very similar. And because up until that point I'd only, you know, got to know prisoners and former prisoners who I'd I'd been in the same environment with. Uh so it was very interesting to see the same the same themes and the same issues coming up time and time again in different parts of the country. Uh and that that was I suppose cemented for me that it's something I need to do. Uh, how, how do you become a prison reformer? I I just just keep talking about it. I suppose keep writing about it. You know, I wrote up my experiences about going in to be a prison inspector because it was such a, a strange experience in lots of ways, and that got published by Inside Time. Uh, and then I thought, you know, I'm going to start making kind of more of a conscious effort to to put ideas out there. So I, you know. I, in addition to tweeting and, and writing my own website, I, I pitched, and the, the Spectator took a couple of articles from me, and then you know they bless them, they keep, they keep taking articles from me, which is nice. Um, so I suppose, yeah, and, and then from that has come opportunities to speak to the media, both in the, in the UK and, and around the world. Uh, and I, I guess I feel I have an obligation to do this. You know, I think I, I said that the first half of my life, I don't think I spent it very well. You know, I think I, I sort of pursued quite kind of venal career paths. I don't think I was focused on kind of doing good in the world. And I feel like I have a an opportunity. I have, you know, some kind of a voice, some kind of a platform. And I, I, I feel obliged to use that to, to try to get people to think differently about the prison system and try to, in some way, you know, if I can just nudge the, the prison reform thing an inch forward, that would be great. So you make a really interesting point that 95% of prisoners will be released. Uh, in that process, therefore, what would be one of the first things that you would want to achieve in terms of prison reform, therefore? Yeah, I think that's, I think often when we talk about prison reform, people go, oh gosh, you know, but we're those horrible murderers that, you know, that serial killers. The thing is that the, the, the most brutal murderers are just not, not, going to be released ever so so from a public protection perspective that's they're not that we shouldn't really be thinking about that the, what what does good prison look like i think we, we have to provide meaningful opportunities to to develop skills and and to heal so education in prisons in britain is pretty low quality by and large what I think we should be doing instead is every prisoner when they arrive in the system we should be able to look at how long you're going to be here okay we know you're going to be in the system for two years what's your pathway through this how are we going to you know help you and everyone should get a you know bespoke program of of, of therapy where necessary of of education of training and of, of just just kind of work to the aim being that when they leave they're in the best possible place to to move into the, the community and be a positive, pro-social, constructive, contributing member of society. One of the biggest levers for doing that, I think, is the open prison system. So I spent the the last eight or nine months of my prison sentence in an open prison called HMP Halsey Bay on the Suffolk Coast. That's totally different. So if, uh, there's no walls. You know, you you promise not to leave, essentially. Um, and you don't leave because, you know, you'd be running around the Suffolk countryside and you get, you'd get caught in. In, in no time at all, and then you go back to a closed prison. But the great thing about open prisons is they are able to facilitate prisoners going out into the community. So instead of having to study a limited range of courses that are offered within the prison, 
you can get a license to go out each day and attend a local college or university. Similarly, prisoners can go and actually work in real jobs in real companies instead of doing prison jobs, which are often make work, essentially. So this means you know, prisoners going out to work will be paying taxes like anyone else who's got a job. They also pay an additional surcharge of up to about 40% of their net income to the victims fund. So they are helping pay to com you know, compensate victims. And the amazing thing about that is that they get to build the habit of work. Often it means they'll be able to continue in that job when they leave. They also, if they've got family outside, they're able to send money home. You know, so 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 men who've maybe been in prison for quite a long time are actually able to support their wife and kids, which helps restore their self-esteem, but also might take a bit of the tension and pressure out of that relationship. You know, if, if you're actually able to say, you know, even though I'm in prison, I'm sending you, you know, a couple of hundred pounds a, a week to help contribute to the the household, mm. that I think can can help strengthen that relationship. Also, prisons are able to save money up so that when they're released, they you know, can afford to rent a property, buy clothes, get to work, that sort of thing. And we know that the two factors which make it, which have the biggest impact on likelihood of reoffending, are having work when you get out of prison and having a stable family environment. So, so that's where I think we could substantially expand the open prison network because really for, if you're not a, a violent prisoner who's held to be a danger to the public and you there's no meaningful risk that you're going to to abscond why would you not get you in an open prison as quickly as possible they are much cheaper to run they offer way more opportunities for rehabilitation and they provide uh, a much less like fundamentally damaging environment i think you know when i was walking around the the sort of 50 acres or so of the, the Halsey Bay site, you know, in, in the Suffolk countryside, I think that's when I began to heal from some of the trauma of the the kind of chaos and the noise and the uh, the tension of Wandsworth. Now, if we go back to the beginning of the story and the characters that you meet on that original prison bus that uh, you hear them laughing and joking and comparing their sentences, out of that small subset of people, do you think any of those people, if they were put into the open prison system that you're talking about, would have benefited and may have then stopped being repeat offenders? Do you think that's possible? Yeah, I think so. You know, fundamentally, people have to make choices, right? And I don't think anyone is almost no one's in prison by mistake. You know, people will will sort of justify their crimes and provide mitigation, but actually, most people in prison are there because we committed a crime what was interesting to me when i was in the open prison is there were lots of guys there who had never had a job literally or maybe they worked in mcdonald's for one day when they were 15 but essentially their their income for their whole adult life had been from drug dealing and the thing about if you're making your money from drug dealing is it can be taken away at any moment so you're you know if the police catch you they'll take all the cash you'll probably get a what they call a proceeds of crime order, a confiscation order, or anything you've got in the bank will be cleared out. They'll take your property, your car. So there's a real instability to that lifestyle. And it was very interesting seeing some of these guys when they started to work out in go on each day to work and they 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 get paid. And they went, oh, hang on, this is the, this is my money, it's clean money. No one can take it from me. And it was fascinating to me to see how that started to shift mindsets. And I'm not saying it would work for everyone. Like there will, of course, there's always going to be people who are outliers. But you know, in in the UK, reoffending costs upwards of twenty billion pounds a year 
And if we could, you know, reduce the reoffending rate by 20, 30, 40% by by putting more people into these open prison environments and, and, and allowing them to actually do something productive with their time. Uh, that to me would be great. And I and I think sometimes people say, well, you know, you, you, we don't want prison to be soft. Well, I, I don't think it is soft. I think I think the prison system we have where a lot of prisoners spend 23 hours a day lying on the bunk bed, staring at daytime TV, bored to tears, often, you know, drinking moonshine or, or taking drugs in order just to numb the, the monotony. That's not that's not a good system. Someone instead having to get up and go to education or work every day, it, that's not softer. Mm. It's more productive. And I think we, we would all benefit from a, from a, an approach like that. So yeah, I think there are lots of people who spend too long in closed conditions that we could get very quickly into open conditions. And we would, um, you know, obviously, if you if you then abscond, you would lose that right, and you'd be straight back to closed conditions. But we, we could be much more imaginative about. I think often it will take a year or or two years before even someone on the lowest risk levels gets to go to an open prison because there's not very many spaces. We should we should be looking to speed that up. Isn't that interesting? And just on those open prisons, what would be the average term or, or sentence that somebody in an open prison would be going through? Is it, is it you you don't start there? I would assume that you end up there. Perhaps a, a yeah. So the, the assumption, yeah. So so the assumption uh, in the UK at the moment, or in England and Wales at the moment, certainly is that you you spend about you're supposed to spend about the last three years of your sentence in an open prison, assuming you you haven't got other risk factors that would mean that's not appropriate. In reality, because we don't have enough open prison spaces, people are often not getting there till they've got two years left or, or less, and that could be for all sorts of crimes. So you you you, you get you know, people on shorter sentences there for, for, for drugs and fraud, but you also will get uh, lifers, so men who who uh, committed murder, uh, who are finishing out the last few years of their sentence before they, they can apply for parole. Uh, and so it's a whole, whole, whole mixture of people. I think the, 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 the opportunity there is to say that actually we could, we could make that happen a lot quicker for for all the sort of lower risk prisoners, you know, and we, we could we could really, I think, make a huge difference. But we we, we have to. The, the risk is that the, the public and the media will see it as oh, we're making prison really soft. It's a holiday camp, and I think it has to be very clear that that, that going to an open prison is tied to being committed to education or training or work at least five full days a week, and you know that it's actually. It's a it's a deal. You get more freedom, but the trade off is you have to commit to doing something good with your time. It's wonderful. It really is. It's just another way, or a new way, I should say, of approaching a problem that we want to sweep under the carpet and make it the problem of the state. And it's not because we all benefit when somebody who's made a mistake gets a second chance, even a third chance, and is able to turn their life around. David, how can people find you? Uh, perhaps your URL and your Twitter handle. Sure, I'm at Shipley Writes on Twitter. That's S-H-I-P-L-E-Y-W-R-I-T-E-S or www.david-shipley.com. Beautiful. David, it's been a, a real privilege uh, to be able to speak to you and uh, and to read your work and to watch a man in real time 
making his contribution to changing the world for the better. Couldn't be more proud to uh, to make your acquaintance and have you here on TNT Radio. It's a wonderful, wonderful experience. I hope to stay in touch and to be able to follow your work and contribute where we can in ways to be able to also make the world a better place. Coming up after the news will be Charles Coves. It's been a great weekend here with you. I've loved every single minute of it. You'll be able to check all the old shows back on Rumble or through our website or uh, different ways to get the podcasts. I'm going to sign off now and say thank you everyone for watching Weekends with me, Jason Alborn, here on TNT Radio.